You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you very much for joining us here on the Draft Time Show today on a Friday afternoon. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you with us. As always, we're going to be with you all the way up until 6 o'clock with the drive time here speaking about two topics in the first half of the program. We're going to take a look at Islamophobia in America, looking at a few uh, specific examples, anti-Muslim sentiments um, in the country over the pond, and look at, of course, the solution to some of the issues that we are facing. And then in the second half of the program, we're going to talk about grammar schools. Yes, that debate is still alive. It has come back to life, basically, in uh, light of the uh, race um, to the next for the next prime minister of the United Kingdom. You have probably followed that in the news. We have some people still against it. We have people in favor of it. So we're going to take a look at what that debate is all about. In this regard, we are going to ask you to go to our Instagram page. If you go to Voice of Sound UK on Instagram, there is a question, and we're asking you about grammar schools. Do you think that grammar schools are fair or unfair? It's a very simple question, and we'd love to hear from you what you have to say. But of course, if you want to leave a comment, you're more than welcome to do so. You can always give us a call during the program if you want to have your say. Uh, 0208687-7878 is the number for you to call. Now, the Council of American Islamic Relations revealed in May of this year that since 2020, so the last two years, the quantity of civil rights complaints from Muslims in the United States has increased by 9%. The report stated that, um, uh, you know, CARE, meaning the Council of American Islamic Relations, received a total of 6,720 complaints nationwide involving a range of issues, including immigration and travel, including discrimination, law enforcement, and government overreach hate and bias incidents, um, incarcerate rights, and of course, school incidents. Now, the question is, why is it that despite Islam being the third largest religion in the United States, it remains to be one of the most hated, if you can say, hated, yeah, with uh, or, or misunderstood with 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 110 reported occurrences of anti-Islamic hate crimes in 2020, making them the second most frequent anti-religious hate crimes, according to Statistic Research Department. Now, by starting at the root and eradicating Islamophobia one person at a time, that is what will create the change Muslims so desperately desire. After all, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has said that he desired to go from door to door like beggars and propagate the true religion of Islam. But in 2022, um, after all that has happened in the past, after all that has been done from the Muslim side, 
And as we said, it is the third largest religion in the United States. The numbers are increasing every year. We've spoken about on different shows how um, uh, Americans are accepting Islam, how it is the fastest growing religion uh, within the prisons, um, where prisoners are accepting the peaceful teachings of Islam and then causing that reformation within themselves into changing into a human into a better human being um and also when if you've been listening to not just our show but you know any show across uh, the voice of islam you will find um and also when his holiness actually uh, in, inaugurated the radio station uh, in in 2016 in february he he mentioned very specific that the aim of the of this radio station is to tell the people to tell our listeners to tell you out there who are listening to us right now that islam conforms to the needs and has a solution to the problems of every time of every era of every generation of every area in the world that you may be in it's not something that we have to choose. It's is it going to be religion? Is it going to be my faith, or do I have to choose between, you know, anything in life and 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 my faith? It's not like that. It is, as we say here, it's a way of living. It's something that we don't have to choose between, but it's part of us, and it makes us at least. Well, that's my experience. By all means, do give us a call if you disagree or if you have a have a different opinion on this. That it it is what makes me a better human being. It it is what makes me a more um, spiritual human being. Based on the teachings of Islam, based on what I've heard, based on what I've read, based on what I've learned, and based on 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 what I've applied in the last years. So it encourages peace and encourages religious harmony. But why is it that many seek to destroy us? That's the question that we want to talk about. That's something that we want to discuss uh, in this very hour. And how Islamophobia has become so prevalent, not just, yes, specifically, we're going to talk about America, give you some examples here as well. But generally speaking, around the world as well, this is a problem that we've seen on the rise, not just you know in 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 America, where it, it seems as if it started from based on events that happened a couple of you know a decade or so two ago after nine eleven. How this whole debate, how this whole issue of Islam being you know, some sort of danger, Islam being some sort of, uh, you know, evil, God forbid, came to the surface. Um, you know, I might have mentioned this before as well, but this is how I perceived in 2000 2001. If you think back, if you are a Muslim, if you know how and when it happened, uh, and 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 you know all all the things that unfolded in, on on that given day. And the weeks and the months that followed after, what happened to you personally in your life? The people around you, the people who were not Muslim, the people who 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 knew that you were a Muslim, 
did that behavior change for the good or for the bad? I mean, that's that's up to you. Uh, depending on you know where you live and how 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 the people were around you, but I've in my personal experience the the it was a it was a mixed it was it was mixed emotions it was good as well as bad. For me, it was an opportunity for us as Ahmadi Muslims. I mean, we always <laughs> take this as an opportunity for us. It was an opportunity to to educate the people, to tell the people about the, the true teachings of Islam, what Islam actually stands for. And I think if you were in your teens at that time, which I was, at least, um, it was a time for us to to confront ourselves with our own religion. For the first time, you were not just doing it for, for the imam, or you, you had to you know, go on a competition or it was a quiz to test you about your knowledge on Islam. No, it was a quiz and a test from the real world. Teachers were quizzing you, students were asking you, your friends were giving you know, throwing questions at you. But you know, hold on, what, why is this and why is that? And how can you say this? And how can you say that? But the Quran says this. But you know, this is what history tells you. So you, we had to actively get involved. We had to talk about and read about what our religion actually stands for. And that was a very, very interesting thing to do, no doubt. But at the same time, it was a learning experience for us. So let's go back to what we were talking about today. And just just to give you that was just you know give you an idea what 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 that specific period did to to my generation at least you know that generation of Muslims Islamophobia then prevalent most most recently that term I guess was coined was was used and 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 came to the surface in uh, in in the media. But the term in itself can be described as 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 a fear, as a you know hostility or or prejudice, most probably, of Islam or Muslims in general. Now, as I said, that ever since the events in two thousand and 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 one, there has been an increase in Islamophobia in the United States, following the bloodiest assault on U.S. territory, bigotry and hate crimes against American Muslims. They skyrocketed even though former president barack obama made frequent attempts to you know heal racial and and religious barriers in the in in the united states anti-muslim hostility increased after the president who came uh after president barack obama in in 2016 and president trump and there i said it the name wasn't I mean, we we kind of got used to him harboring anti-Muslim prejudice. We we saw it in the news. We we saw the the rallies. We we heard the rhetoric that he had to use. We you know we had many many programs here on 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 the drive time leading up to that election as well, and then after his election as president as well, and then we looked at it, you know, six months into his presidency as well, how the situation was, and. It was, I mean, all, all, all of it from from the beginning till the end. The Washington Post, for example, that they reported that a supporter said of of Trump in those in those years that we have a problem in this country 
and that problem is called Muslims. In in September 2015, at a campaign rally, he simply, or you know, President Trump, he 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 nodded for a political leader, for a political figure of that caliber, of that um, yeah standing, to agree basically that yes, we do have a problem, and that problem is called Muslims. What kind of message? does that give to the one who did not have the courage, to someone who did not have um, the backing of anyone or someone um, to to have the same sentiments and to utter them in public. Now you have, as we said and we've spoken here on, on the Drive Time show about this before as well, that once that 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 door was opened basically that it it's okay it's fine it's 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 there's, there's no problem with it that you have anti-muslim sentiments that you that you say that there's a problem called uh, islam and called muslims um as 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 soon as that door was then opened it was okay for everyone to say it and now if you look at it, it's not, as I said, a problem just prevalent in the United States. We have it here at home in the UK. It's it's spreading all across Europe and even in other countries and in other uh, continents. If you look at Australia, for example, how MPs have uh, behaved. I'm thinking of a certain MP who came to the the uh, to the parliament dressed in a burqa just to make aware or raise awareness about how badly these these muslim women are treated our own outgoing prime minister certain comments that i don't want to repeat i'm not going to repeat uh, that we've read in uh, some of the articles that he wrote it's it's okay to, to have these kind of uh, feelings, it's okay to have these kind of opinions, because let's say, I mean, it's 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 all good and fine to to say that. And then one stat that we've come across here as well is after the 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 referendum that we've had here in in the UK, the attacks that we've seen, the rise in attacks that we've seen on specifically on Muslim women was was alarming based on the fact that they are visibly um, linked to the religion of Islam based on the fact that they dress a certain way it's they're an easy target they're an easy target to identify as as a Muslim and in the aftermath of the the, the referendum um, here the Muslim Council of Britain as well as uh, Talmama they've reported an increase, a drastic increase in attacks on our Muslim sisters who were visibly dressed as a Muslim woman. Here with us to talk a little bit more about this topic and you know some other questions that we have is our first guest for today. She's a law student, a changemaker and an activist. Uh, Rukaya Afan is with us on the line. Assalamu alaikum, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Rukaya. 
Alaikum assalam. Thank you so much for having me. Zakallah for joining us today. Now, um, you recently visited the United States, uh, if that's correct. If, can I ask you, how, how was your experience as a Muslim woman who wears a headscarf? Was it any different from the United Kingdom? Was it, you know, your first time visiting the U.S.? Uh, yes, it was definitely the first time I visited the U.S. Um, it was quite different from the U.K., I'd say. I think in the UK, I feel more accepted personally mm. um, as a hijab-wearing Muslim woman. In the US, it was less so, uh, but that wasn't true for all areas of the country. Yeah. Um, I personally didn't feel very welcome in places like New York or Washington, D.C. Really? Uh, but yes, I, w- I did. In, not in the Muslim communities, the the parts where they're more populated by Muslims, Mm. uh, but in just general parts, other parts uh, of those states and cities. Um, But I did actually feel a little bit more welcome in Arizona, which I was very surprised because (laughs) that that was not my expectation at all. Wow. So, I mean, from the way you're saying it, somebody would expect that New York, I mean, it's a lot of people, yeah. probably busy, busy life. The last thing that they're concerned about is is religion or how someone looks or her dresses, because you'll see all sorts of people there. But that that's surprising. Yeah. Wow. Um, As part of the Young Changemakers Fellowship Program in the United States, you met with many different organizations within different states of the U.S. working to tackle this specific issue of Islamophobia. If I can ask you, Sister Rukia, can you tell us a little bit about these organizations and how they're fighting against Islamophobia? How is that coming along? Yeah, so uh, one of the first ones that come to mind is the Council on American-Islamic Relations, um, which I'm at the Arizona branch. They're uh, a national organization and their headquarters are based in Washington. Mm -hmm. And they specifically provide uh, pro bono legal aid and advice for Muslims who are victims of Islamophobic attacks, especially when these attacks are initiated by the government or the police um, in America. So... They provide their uh, legal services free of charge for Muslim victims of Islamophobia. And it was really interesting to find out that that they have something like this. I'm not aware of something like this in the UK or Mm -hmm. in Europe, actually. Um, And now I was just glad that they're they're doing some absolutely amazing work. And... and have you spoken to some of the people who were affected by this? I mean, we hear it here in the UK. I've mentioned one of the things that I personally, um, uh, when, when I read it, 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 it was alarming, it was shocking, it was sad for me as well. After the referendum, the things that happened specifically to our, our yeah. sisters here in the UK. But what kind of, if you, if you don't mind me asking, what, what kind of issues are we talking about in, in the US, for example? Is it similar to the uk is it what's the difference is if if at all i think from what i understood there is a difference uh, and from my experience there i think the the islamophobia there is a lot more institutionalized hmm. compared to the uk um i might be wrong but that's what i understood and there were um incidents for example of airport security um, doing something they shouldn't have because that person was Muslim, hmm. like mistakenly, apparently. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the, random, the random search, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, 
or for example uh, police barging into a Muslim owned house without a warrant hmm. uh, there have even been cases where Muslims are being targeted and, and killed by other members of the community quite Islamophobic communities hmm. sometimes so just a variety of different cases yeah. um, and I, I definitely say that in my experience, I found that the Islamophobia there is more embedded in institutions, oh, and institution. uh, their war, their war on terror, for example, is mm. very, very political, institutionalized compared to the UK. Yeah. But the UK as well has its problems, of course. Sure. Now, you also in um, as part of that program, you also met with specifically with Muslim women who had been affected yeah. by Islamophobia, and they also explain how Islamophobia in the US impacts other Western countries. If I can ask you, what was the biggest takeaway for you in that conversation? And have you seen for yourself the 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 you know the influence that Western countries have on each other in terms in terms of Islamophobia? Yes. Um, so I met with a woman called Dr. Maha Hilal, who uh, researches Islamophobia and the war on terror in particular in the USA, mm-hmm. and. She is also an activist and community organizer and the founder of various organizations that are working to tackle Islamophobia. She uh, talked to me about how, especially after the 9-11 attacks um, in America, and, you know, that's when the whole war and terror narrative started, Hmm. a lot of countries in the West started to follow those same measures that the U.S. was putting in place um, that disproportionately target Muslims and therefore are very Islamophobic measures. And we see that, for example, tightening on security and uh, the Muslim ban, which I'm sure many people have heard of, um, a lot of countries in the West, so for example, France or the UK, have yeah. started following in those uh, footsteps as well. So she described this as like the U.S. creating a blueprint for Islamophobia and particularly institutionalized Islamophobia. Uh, And another thing, actually, she has written a book called Innocent Until Proven Muslim. Uh, This is by Dr. Mahalilal. So Mm. I definitely recommend that book for people who want to find out more. It's it's really, really Mm. interesting, but also depressing if, if you're Muslim. Sure. It's it's interesting to hear that, and and based on this, I want to ask you that due to institutions and and which are run ultimately by lawmakers, which are run by people in power and position, and you know, who are of influence, and who are listened to by not just a few couple of hundred, by but but quite a few people around the world. When they say things, for example, I mentioned Donald Trump, when they say things that we had, you know, Boris Johnson say a couple of months, uh, a couple of years ago as well, then you have the example of France, you have the example of, of Poland and so many other countries where the leaders of those countries, or at least those who are in the running to be the leaders of those countries, Marie Le Pen, for example, is one example. When they say th- certain things that we don't want this, or Islam does not belong to this country, or uh, a, a, you know, a hijab is, is a sign of oppression, for us as Muslims, it's, it's bad enough. But what, what do you think is the impact on, on people who are already kind of, you know, 
I don't yeah. want to do anything with Islam. Islam is, is 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 this and is that, based on the information that they gather from the media. How dangerous is that? And what what can we as ordinary Muslims, what can we do uh, to counter a narrative by someone who's the likes of yeah these yeah. big top politicians? Yeah, that's a very good question. Thank you. I think uh, it's definitely very worrying. The impacts of that are very worrying. And we see this, like, you get... It's these terms that I've created. So extrinsic um, Islamophobia, which is just, like, casual Islamophobia, especially Mm. towards women, because we're such easy targets, as you mentioned before, and visible targets as well, uh, for those of us who, who dress in an Islamic way. Um, we see things like acid attacks, we see things like microaggressions in the workplace or at university, um, general bullying, things like that, which are quite quite worrying. Um, and then I think to answer your second question, which is what can we do as Muslims, I think what we can do and what, what alhamdulillah, Allah has given some of us the opportunity to do is educate people and be of you know the best character like we're taught in islam and um try and not get angry even though it's very easy to get angry when when you know somebody is really rude to you because you're muslim or uh, might you know say some really horrible things to your face but try and you know hold that anchor in and instead take um, it as an opportunity to to educate yeah yeah question them you know why why is it like that and you know what sometimes you find that these people it's just like you said they've been fed the wrong information um whoever fault that is Mm. and at least you know if if you have the emotional strength to hold your anger in and instead question them and, and make them see that actually you're just a person just like them. Yeah, yeah. And we're not scary, we're not monsters, we're not anything else that yeah. the media sometimes portrays us as. Um, and I think that's one of the smallest yet really effective things that we as individuals can do. Obviously, there is other things like, you know, um, creating organizations or campaigns yeah. or bigger things which a few of us alhamdulillah will have opportunities to do and you know raise awareness on a larger scale but i think on an individual basis that's what i would suggest wonderful lastly there sister one question that i want to ask you and i do this at at every uh, muslim related issue that we have um what i mean by that is it, it can be political it can be religious it can be Whatever it is, I like to ask this question that if we have this issue, what what do you think about the response so far from the the Muslim world, be it here at home, be it here in, in the United States, uh, be it on a political level by the Muslim countries that we have around the world? Is that something that might help our efforts, you know, the things that you've mentioned that don't get angry but try to educate, take it as an opportunity. But when our leaders, the Muslim world, is not doing anything or if they are doing anything, how much help or not help have you seen? I mean, is that even something that, that, that matters? I don't, as to whether that matters or not, um, 
I think it probably would help if if we saw a stronger response from the Muslim world um, and, you know, a more supportive response with regards to... Hmm. United maybe as well. Yeah, with regards to us Muslims living in the West and it's it's us who are usually the targets of this Islamophobia. Hmm. Um, It would definitely be helpful, in my opinion, as to how to practically achieve that sort of unity I think that's a, going to be quite a complicated... That's going to be the question um, that needs to be yeah. solved. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, law student, changemaker and activist Rukia Fawn with us on the line. Thank you very much for, for joining us today, sister. Great to Thank talk you. to you. Thank you. Jazakallah. Jazakallah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call if you want to have your say. We're going to continue with this topic and there's a few more things that we want to take a look at just uh, when when it comes to the political side. So we were talking about um, that one supporter um, who <laughs> in 2015, in September 2015, had a campaign rally who said that we do have a problem. We have a problem in this country and it's called Muslims. Now when the supporter asked when can we get rid of them, meaning Muslims? Um, uh, <laughs> Trump began nodding and responding, right, we we need this question. Now, in reply, Mr. Trump stated, we're going to be looking at a lot of different possibilities. And furthermore, a study conducted by Mohsen et al. Um, at school of, uh, the, you know, the School of Media and Communication Studies in Lahore concluded that he he utilizes rhetorical language in his tweets, when he was still tweeting actively, particularly demagogic language to to divide society into us and them, excluding those, excuse me, with with other ethnic identities, especially you know Muslims. If you look at it as a, a president is not only a leader of the country but also a public figure and and should know the words and actions can and will influence their supporters further down the line you know just at the end of of the of of the, of the presidency we we saw how much impact the words of a leader can have on 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 his followers when they did not even hesitate to attack their own uh, institutes of of liberty and freedom not even the capital was 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 saved from that so when you look at Islam, and again, we're talking about the problems, but we're also trying to give some solution here, that you're trying to attack uh, Islam and, and Muslims in, in, in these uh, comments, uh, with this rhetoric, with these actions. But if you were to know more about the religion of Islam, we can probably solve pretty much every problem that there is in the world. In chapter, um, uh, in different chapters of of the Holy Quran, and also in the narrations of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we find about every single part of society. If you are a a leader, then you will know your responsibilities. If you are a father, you will know your responsibilities. If you are a mother, you will know about your responsibilities. If you or anyone in society you will know about the duties and the responsibilities that you have and that you must fulfill to, in order to create that peaceful society that everybody is longing for. When one narration, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that all of you are guardians, guardians, and you're responsible for your subjects. The ruler is a guardian and responsible for his subjects. 
The man is a guardian of his family. The woman is a guardian in her husband's house and responsible for her wards. A servant is a guardian of his master's property and responsible for his ward. So all of you are guardians and are responsible for your subjects. And in one other narration, it says that even if you don't have anyone under you, if you don't have any employees, if you're not a father, if you're not a mother, if you're not a servant, if you don't have any responsible person, if you don't, if you're not responsible for any single person in your life, you are responsible for your own self. And God will ask you about about that as well. That you, how did you treat your own nafs? How did you treat your own soul, your 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 spiritual side of 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 uh, of this life? Did you take care of that? Did you take care of your body? Did you take care of of your health? Even all of these things will will be considered and will be kept in mind. So. Every single person in society has a responsibility. And according to that responsibility, how we carry that responsibility out, we will be questioned by God Almighty. The Independent reports that Zubi, uh, an Arab-American kid, inquired about finishing his math assignment at home in Ridgefield, New Jersey. He, his instructor said, that we don't negotiate with terrorists. Now, although the class reacted differently to the incident than Zubi did, some pupils were shocked while others simply chuckled. Situations as these come to show how systematic Islamophobia, something that you know our guest previously was talking about as well, still exists in the education system to this day. In a school, an institution where children are having their belief system and morals constructed and 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 formed for the future uh, and, and, and influenced by their education, it is that much more important that they are being taught to treat each other with kindness, that they're, that they're being taught the right kind of information by the right kind of people. And that's exactly something that is taught by Islam time and time again. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, how many times have we repeated this? He said that you are all brothers and sisters. You're all equal, no matter to which nation or tribe you belong, and no matter what your status is, you are equal. And he said that just as the fingers of both hands are alike, nobody can claim to have any distinctive right greatness over another. The command which I give you today is not just for today, but it is forever. Always remember to keep acting upon it until you return to your true master. Now, earlier on, we spoke to another guest um, who is uh, currently a junior at a high school in Florida. Sister Amina Sayed uh, spoke to us, and this is what she had to say. Assalamu alaikum. So Amna, my first question for you is, we know that Islamophobia has risen in current years all in the Western Hemisphere. What do you think is the main reason behind it? Um, yeah, so I think Islamophobia has risen throughout many years due to how Islam has been negatively broadcasted throughout the world. And there's so many groups that portray Islam negatively such as like terrorist organizations holding their beliefs and practices to Islam. And I think that these are like the leading factors as to why people feel the need to discriminate Muslim minorities. Mm -hmm. 
So, like, when it comes to tackling Islamophobia, we know that breaking misconceptions is very important. So, like, do you think your education institutions are doing enough to break these misconceptions and kind of help educate people about the true Islam? Um, in my opinion, I don't think so. Like, as a whole, they haven't taught enough about Islam or, like, in general, how to prevent Islamophobia. And I also believe that schools need to work on teaching students more about Islam and other religions, of course, because in a lot of cases with like Islamophobia, Muslim students deal with harassment and such things silently. Um, And I think it's important, especially in a school environment, that it's taught better, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, So do you think it like puts off some people from like kind of expressing that they're um, Muslims or like... Is it just something they just have to deal with and they get on with in their lives? No, I definitely think that it makes being a Muslim student a lot harder. Like, there are some people who probably wouldn't say that, like, hey, I'm Muslim. And, like, even for me, like, wearing a hijab and stuff, it's, like, it's difficult because you're scared that, like, oh, like, what if someone says something or something happens, you know? So... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have lived both in the North and now in the South of America. So do you see a difference in people's attitudes towards Islam? And why do you think that is? Yeah, so I've lived in northern and western parts of the states. And I definitely see a broad change in people's opinions, their mindsets and like actions towards Islam. And it's I think it's so important that that point is like understood, like the differences in like the north and south, because if you're traveling, like, It's, like, such a big thing. And so in the North, specifically, like, in school, students and staff members were always, like, so understanding. And any sort of hate crimes, um, including Islamophobia, were handled, like, extremely well. Mm -hmm. I think the diversity in the North as compared to the South also plays a major role on the behavioral changes of the two environments. Um, And as a hijabi, I feel that in the South, it's definitely a lot harder dealing with Islamophobia because... Um, like wearing a hijab in like warmer places, you're already going to get looked at for dressing differently or modestly. Mm-hmm. And so, I see it, yeah, um, okay. I see it like outside of school and inside of school that like people like you get like looks and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, and yes. then, yeah, yeah, and like I feel that it's um, the reason that people are this way in the south as compared to the north is because. People in the South, I feel that they were specifically raised around, like, the same group of people. And so they didn't see any sort of change or any sort of, like, diversity, really, until later on. And that impacted their opinions and thoughts negatively because it's like, well, okay, like, there's new people in town or, you know. And then as compared to the North, there's, like, definitely more diversity and different cultures. And so I think that is, like, that's what caused the huge clash of, like, Islamophobia in the North and South. Mm-hmm. Do you think, like, the Black Lives Matter movement, I know it's more associated with, like, racism, but do you think that's opened up, like, the conversation to different um, backgrounds like Islam and other religions, not just in the North but in the South? Like, has it made an impact in that way? I feel that with the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I feel like it didn't really touch base on other... Like, there was a period of time where it's, like, Asian Lives Matter and, you know, other, like minorities either they matter and stuff but i feel like no it hasn't made that big of an effect um like it's definitely known i think 
there is more respect and stuff. But honestly, I don't see a major change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like, in your opinion, what do you think is like the biggest change that needs to happen so that people kind of um, become more open-minded and kind of more accepting of these different minorities and backgrounds? I think a way to like work around this, honestly, I think it's just teaching people the true Islam and teaching people the peace behind it because obviously people like the hate comes from whatever people think mm-hmm. and Islam would. So I think just being better taught and maybe even having it like, not just Islam, um, but even like other religions that receive hate and stuff. I feel like it should honestly be part of something students are taught. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely yeah. agree. Um, thank you for coming. I hope you have a lovely a day ahead. <clears throat> All right, Jazakallah to Sister Amna there for sharing her views and for giving us some time and answering some of the questions that we had. Jazakallah for that. Earlier in August, it was discovered that race and religion were common characteristics amongst the victims in a string of murders in New Mexico. According to police, investigators believe Friday's murder may be connected to three recent murders of Muslim men also from South Asia. Now, Muslims in America who already experienced discrimination are now more fearful as a result of these killings. One instance of this discrimination may be seen in a federal lawsuit brought against Alaska Airlines in August. Um, you might have come across this uh, this, uh, this piece that CNN News recently did a story on two black Muslim passengers who were kicked off a flight. Yes, kicked off a flight after another passenger alerted the crew to the fact that they were, listen to this, texting and speaking Arabic. Now, they were allegedly removed at the time due to a ticket issue, according to the crew. The airline manager they spoke with after they were removed considered the translation of the text to be harmless, but the victims, Derara and Lamin, felt humiliated by the circumstance because they were already surrounded by law authorities. Now, there are an Alamin's attorney on this case said the airline could have acted responsibly by calming tensions, apologizing to our clients for their mistreatment and allowing our clients to remain in their rightful seats. Instead, Alaska Airlines chose to pile on to the bigotry by using these two black Muslim American passengers as props in an admittedly unjustified, unnecessary and self-serving display of security theater. By bringing this lawsuit, our clients not only seek justice for themselves, but also for an entire community tired of being scapegoated to justify discrimination in air travel. Oh boy, can I relate to that. These are just two cases amongst many discriminations and injustices which Muslims face against America. God Almighty states in chapter 49 verse 15, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we made you into tribes and sub-tribes for the sake of easy recognition. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of God is the most righteous among you. Surely, God is all-knowing, all-aware. And I think this is the problem that we are facing in the world today. That we don't realize that it is God who is all-knowing. It is God who is all-aware. It is God who knows the secrets of the heart, who knows what's in their breast. And it's not just what we conceal uh, from, from people. And we have made it into an easy thing to do, to, to, to target a specific 
religion to target a specific race. I like what Sister Amna had to say that it's not just about teaching about one religion. It's about teaching about every religion. And Islam, we ultimately believe, is the pinnacle of religion in, in, in the first place. Every good thing that you have in other religions has been combined, not copied, but combined and, and, and included into this religion of, of, of God Almighty. And we need to work towards a better future. The famous author H.P. Lovecraft once stated that the oldest and strongest of emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And isn't that what is happening in the world today? I mean, I've, I've experienced it so many times that every time I had the opportunity, the I'll call it the honor of educating people about my religion, about telling people about the beauty of my religion and, and eliminating the fear that they have had for so many years just by listening and, and, and hearing stories from, I don't know what sources um, there are out there. And if you have this chance, if you have the opportunity to take that fear away from someone, to see them glow up, to see them all of a sudden realize that, hmm, they're different from what I thought. This is not what I was expecting. This is not what I was told. This is actually quite peaceful. This is actually quite normal. There's nothing, you know, crazy about it. And that's the moment that you want. That's 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 the moment that where you think, you know what, mission accomplished. That's 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 the reason why I got into this in the first place. To see the change and to create that change in other people and to make sure that they find out about the real and the true teachings of, of this wonderful, this beautiful religion that is practiced by billions and billions of people across the globe. If you look at and it starts with simple things. I mean, education, it's, it starts with these simple things that what, what does the name of that religion in the first place, what does that mean? It means peace. So how can a, how can a religion that means peace Literally, the translation of the of the name of that religion is peace. How can how can that religion stand for for terrorism? How can that religion stand for killing the innocent? Now, many individuals argue that this this fear that I was talking about of the unknown is is justified because Islam encourages its its believers to be terrorists from 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 the early age. It's a fear born from ignorance, and fortunately, it's a fear that can be overcome, as I said, through your knowledge. If you're a Muslim listening out there, if you have come across this, and if somebody insulted you, if somebody yelled at you, if somebody walked away from you with, you know, throwing some dirty comments at you, how did that make you feel? Were you, if you were angry, why were you angry at that time? Didn't you see it as an opportunity? And if you didn't seize that opportunity, why didn't you? Was it because of, I don't know, lack of confidence? Or was it because of lack of confidence about your own religion? Sometimes we don't know about our own religion, which makes us a bit hesitant to tell the other people about it, to tell the other party about it. 
Now, I want to play one clip here of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community. May Allah strengthen his hand, which he delivered to um, uh, you know, guests at the annual convention in the Netherlands on the 28th of September 2019. And he, he spoke on the need to break misconceptions of all religions and, and foster an environment of unity and peace in order to help the next, you know, the future generations to be successful and and to progress. Um, something that I don't think we can talk about enough and, and the, the need for that is out there um, as we've heard from, you know, our young sister in, in America as well as from all the things that, you know, I've mentioned. And this, let's listen to what His Holiness had to say. Uh, this is a speech at the annual convention in the Netherlands. To build bridges of love and compassion in order to unite it. In short, at every level of society and across all communities and people, Muslims have a duty to spread peace. And the fundamental reason for this, as I have already mentioned, is that the very first chapter of the Holy Quran states, all praise to Allah, Lord of all the worlds. Accordingly, where God Almighty is the provider and sustainer for all mankind, it's simply not possible for true Muslims to bear hatred or ill will towards their fellow creation. Rather, our hatred can only be filled with sentiments of love, compassion, and sympathy for others. Of course, as practicing Muslim, we have our religious beliefs. We believe that God is one and that it is our duty to turn to Him and to worship Him alone. Yet, we also firmly abide by the timeless precept of the Holy Quran that there should be no compulsion in religion. <clears throat> As I said before, religion is and always will be a matter of the heart and a personal matter for each individual. The very meaning of the world, Islam, is peace. And there are many verses of the Holy Quran that makes it categorically clear that Muslims must be peaceful and show love and respect to others. How could it be that when such a peaceful teachings was revealed to the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, that he himself would violate the, his, its teachings? Uh, <coughs> honest and fair historians testify to the fact that the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, never inflicted any cruelty or usurped the rights of other people. At every juncture, he taught peace, forbearance, and fulfilling the rights of mankind. And certainly, this, his teachings are our inspiration. We proudly proclaim to be the followers of that noble prophet who the Holy Quran declared a mercy of mankind, uh, for mankind. This is the reason that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community raises the slogan of love for all and hatred for none. At this time of strife and division, our message is that all nations and all people must urgently strive for peace. The fierce critics of Islam should recognize that instead of uh, targeting their uh, violent venom towards Islam, and its noble prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, they should eradicate the traces of bias, prejudice, 
and self-interest. Otherwise, disorder and hatred in the world will continue to escalate. <clears throat> Frustration and anger amongst those Muslims who are uneducated or ignorant of the true teachings of their religion will rise to the surface, not only amongst the Muslim community, but across society, whatever, uh, wherever young people are left hopeless and frustrated, they, became, uh, they become easy prey for hateful um, uh, clerics or extremists who poison their minds. We must guard against this, otherwise the bitter cycle of hatred that has darkened the modern world will continue to churn. Peace with, uh, within Muslim societies and in the wider world will become an ever more distant dream. As I said at the outset, it is the need of the time that we all join together and instead of uh, inveighing against one another religious sentiments, we join forces and work towards building a better future for our children and future generations. Let us set aside our differences and work faithfully towards developing true and sustainable peace in the world. Let us respect one another and strive to build a better society founded by uh, founded upon principles of unity and uh, the common good. May Allah the Almighty enable us all to do this. Thank you very much. Alright, that was His Holiness talking about setting aside all our personal differences for the good and benefit of mankind. Now we're going to go to the 5 o'clock news and then we'll be back after that uh, and with the second topic and that is about grammar schools. Don't go anywhere, stay with us. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, good afternoon, peace be upon you and welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam today with myself, Raza. Thank you very much for staying with us. We're going to conclude this topic uh, on Islamophobia in the States. Um, there's one more clip that actually I want to play to you, and which is also by His Holiness, the current Caliph of the MD Muslim community, which he delivered at a landmark and quite historic address in the heart of Berlin entitled Islam and Europe, a Clash of Civilizations? Question mark. Now, in this, His Holiness has mentioned that the true teachings of Islam and the importance of education to break misconceptions and dissolve uh, um, you know, and hatred uh, or fear towards Muslims is something that we need to do if we want to continue with this. It's a very short one and then we're going to be back and start with the grammar school topic. On that note, just quickly, if you have not done so, I want to um, um, just update you here. If you go to our story on Instagram, go to Words of Time UK, the question is that, do you think grammar schools are fair or unfair? Right now, it's a very, very tight race. So I do want to know how this ends up after we've come to the end of today's program. So you still have an hour to cast your vote. But of course, if you want to leave any other comment, by all means, you can do that. So let's quickly listen to the speech of His Holiness that he delivered in Berlin on the topic of Islam. Uh, and Europe, a clash of civilizations? Question mark. I wish to make it clear that despite what you hear or 
read in the media, there is no cause to fear Islam. Muslim believe that the Holy Quran to be a final and perfect religious teaching and it is due to our love and obedience to the Holy Quran that we firmly believe that religion is a matter of the heart and personal to every individual. In chapter 2, verse 257, the Holy Quran has categorically stated that there should be no compulsion in matters of religions. Therefore, there is no need for non-Muslims to fear that Muslims will try to forcefully spread their beliefs or impose these, uh, their views on this part of the world. The hateful ideology of the tiny minority of so-called Muslims who have adopted extremism bears no correlation with the teachings of the Holy Quran. Indeed, I have said many times that governments and relevant authorities should deal very firmly with extremists, be they Muslims or non-Muslims. In terms of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we believe that an, under no circumstances does Islam permit the use of force on any type of coercion in the spread of faith. Why then is there a need to fear Islam? Why do people think that their civilization or culture is at risk from Muslims? Now, after explaining the differences between civilization and culture from an Islamic perspective, I would like to present some of the core teachings of Islam. Many myths and misconceptions about Islam and its founder, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, have spread and whilst it is not possible to cover all aspects of Islamic teachings in the short time available, I would like to mention some of the rights of mankind that Islam has established. A very significant verse of the Holy Quran in terms of human rights is chapter, uh, is chapter 4, verse 37, which states, And worship Allah and associate not with Him, and show kindness to parents and to kindred and orphans and, this is, and the needy, and to the neighbor who is a kinsman and the neighbor who is a stranger and the companion by your side and the wayfarer and those whom your right hands possess. In this verse, where Allah the Almighty instructs Muslims to worship Him, He also instructs them to treat their parents with love and affection. How can this teaching requiring Muslims to love and honor their parents clash with any religion or nation. The verse also requires Muslims to treat their relatives and loved ones with kindness and consideration. It requires them to support and 
comfort their the most vulnerable and underprivileged members of society such as orphans in this regard we believe that one of the key ways to help the poor is through education if younger members of society who are from broken homes or who are stricken by poverty are educated it will enable them to break free from the shackles of destitution opportunities will open up to them and so free from frustration and resentment such youths will grow to be productive members of society rather than being lured towards a life of crime or gang culture this is why All right. This was His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed May Allah strengthen his hand The fifth successor to the promised Messiah Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed The founder of the MD Muslim community On whom be peace Speaking in Berlin About Islam and the West Are they a clash or are they not I want to conclude this topic again With one of his quotes as well He said that publicity is the oxygen Sustaining most terrorist or extremist groups Instead of conflict and division We desire for people to live alongside one another in peace and harmony. We seek to build bridges of love that unite all mankind. And if we have that fear of the unknown, the only thing that will take that fear away is to build bridges like these. We're going to take a short break here and then we'll be back after that with the second topic for today and that is about grammar schools. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Let us make a resolution. Let us make this resolution to promote the message of peace and brotherhood, which is your message to mankind that people of different religions should not quarrel and fight with each other. but should accept and tolerate and live together in that spirit of brotherhood and peace which is the essence of your religion You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and welcome back to the Draft Time show here on the Voice of Islam today with myself Raza. Grammar schools, do they help with social mobility? That is the question we're trying to we're going to try to answer in the next 15 minutes or so. Um and for that would love for you to get involved don't forget there's a question we're asking you on Instagram and on Instagram story are grammar schools fair or are they not fair now grammar schools for those of you who don't know are schools which focus on providing academic education based on selection 
by a child's ability. If you have a child, let's say in you know, uh, around the age of 9, 10, 11, you might have heard about an 11-plus test called here in the UK, um, which is which is an entrance test um, to decide if your child can attend, will attend a grammar school or not. Now, for a long time, many have believed that grammar schools provide a ladder of opportunity to work in class students, but many since then have disagreed because of you know, much research adge- uh, suggestion, su- suggesting quite the opposite. Now, in 1964, the UK was at its peak with the amount of grammar schools that we had in the country. However, from these grammar schools, only 5% of pupils actually went to university. Now, this has increased to the national average of 44%. Despite this, though, many conservatives agree with increasing the amount of grammar schools within the UK, as grammar schools currently only educate just 5% of our pupils. Social mobility, then, uh, refers to the shift in an individual's social status from one status to another. For example, much research has been done to show that countries with high income inequality lack social mobility, which means that children of highly paid individuals, of parents who earn crazy amounts of money, they're more likely to be highly paid. And then you have children of low-paid individuals, of low-income families, which are more likely to be, just like you know the previous generations, to be low earners. So there would be social mobility if children of low-paid individuals could grow up to be you know, ballers to be high-paid earners. In the Holy Quran, we find um, about knowledge specifically, because ultimately the, un- the 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 underlying factor is here: what is good for the child? What is? It's not so much. Again, we we I, I want to take this out of the equation from from the very get-go. It's not just about how much money that child is going to earn <laughs> that that's not that's not the the end goal here of course it's an added bonus yes i mean it's 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 good thing to have but this is not the goal that you should have that anybody should have any child should have or any parent should have that you know how much uh dough is my kid going to earn no it's about the education. It's about the value of education. It's about the 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 you know the life lessons that that child is going to learn in that period of education. So, the discussion today that we're going to have is about whether the, the the knowledge that grammar schools provide are powerful enough to encourage social mobility, or if they are not. Now. Increasing the amount of grammar schools withers away the chances of private schools. So grammar schools, they allow more access to them than private schools. To the working class population as private schools, they have fees for up to, I don't know, £10,000 a year or a semester, even clearly not accessible to everyone. Whereas grammar schools, they're state schools, meaning they do not require a fee to be paid. So grammar schools, they provide a similar quality of education to working class students as well. Of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you pass the test and if you get into that, etc., etc. 
Then you have comprehensive schools, which are not good enough.、Uh, there was a 2015 Ofsted report which found that many of the most able children attending non-selective secondary schools are failing to achieve their potential. The report also found that too many students were receiving teaching within a curriculum that did not sufficiently challenge them. And a quarter of these children, despite obtaining very strong English and math skills at the age of eleven, but did not go to achieve a B grade at GCSE. So, encouraging, discouraging, sorry, social mobility. These students, they, they, you know, their, their full potential is not achieved because of, you know, many reasons that include, you know, the the student classes in key stage three are often affected by. Uh, Low-level disruption. Many many secondary schools are still not, you know, giving demanding work to the children.、Um, the students' aspirations were simply not high enough. That that includes the predicted grades given by the teachers, and also the most able students' achievements. They suffer even more when they are from poorer backgrounds. You've seen it. You know it. If you are a parent, if your child goes to school, that while you were making that choice of which school your 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 child will attend, which school your child will go to, how many different opinions, how many different levels, how many different、um, grades of schools you've you had, and and、uh, outstanding this, poor, good that. And depending on the area where the school is located in, so if that is just the outward experience and and the picture that we have, imagine what you know, issues that we will have if you go into those schools and if you go a little bit deeper into、um, the, the this this whole discussion. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is reported to have said that you know he told his followers to seek knowledge, even if they have to travel. To China, and he made it clear to everyone that they should use any means necessary to get the best education, or education in general. Again, what we are talking about here is social mobility. Social mobility、um, is not necessarily and only or exclusively linked to how much that child is going to earn. It's about the experience. It's about how much that child will give back to the society that he or she. Grew up in. Now, earlier on, we spoke to、uh, one of our guests for today about this topic,、um, and we're going to play that recording in just a little bit. Stephen、uh, Gerard, not actually, sorry, Doctor、uh, John Andrews. John Andrews is an education policy、um, institute's head of analysis and director of school systems and performance research, and we spoken to him. Earlier on, asking him about、uh, the report, which was published in 2016, which included that there was no significant impact on social mobility. You know that these grammar schools、uh, were were were、um, kind of responsible for what he thought about this, and a few more other questions that we had for him. And this is what、uh, Mr. Andrews had to say. The Education Policy Institute (EPI)、um, published a report in 2016, which concluded that there was no significant positive impact on social mobility due to grammar schools. Do you mind expanding on why that was found? 
Yeah, it's, it's worth saying that it's not just our report that's found that. There's been multiple reports over the last few years and actually over the last um, couple of decades. The attainment of grammar schools um, is largely driven by their intake. So you have pro- high prior attainment um, going in and then you obviously have high uh, attainment going out. Our, our research did um, actually identify small positive effects for pupils who attended grammar schools. It's at most about a third of a grade in each GCSE subject. Um, but importantly, there was a penalty for those that didn't um, get into the grammar, so it's, it's, which is around a tenth of a grade um, in each subject. So what we actually found is that grammar schools don't really increase attainment overall. What they do is just shift around who gets those grades, so those in the grammars versus those not in the grammars. Um, and we know that those that miss out on grammar schools are disproportionately um, going to be from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds to pupils from low income backgrounds, for example. Yeah, you just talked about disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, in that same report, which you uh, mentioned, EPI also mentions how pupils who are eligible for free school meals are underrepresented in grammar schools. Why has that pattern occurred? Yeah, so what we can see in the latest data is around 5% of pupils in grammar schools are eligible for free school meals. And that's a, a key indicator of, um, of poverty amongst the pupil population. So it's 5% in grammar schools, but amongst secondary schools as a whole, um, it's around 20%. And the big driver for that really is the, the large attainment gap that already exists between pupils from low income backgrounds and their peers by the, by the time they reach the end of the primary school. So when, when they're ready to take the 11 plus. And the gap between disadvantaged pupils and their peers is around equivalent to around nine months of of learning by the end of primary school. So that so there's just not that many um, disadvantaged pupils that actually pass the standard, um, if you like, that grammar schools re- require. And there's a, a couple of other things that are also in play. Um, something that's often cited by those that are in favour of grammar schools is actually, well, actually, if you look at the areas they serve. Um, they tend to be less de- disadvantaged um, disadvantaged areas, so particularly places like uh, Buckinghamshire and parts of Kent and so on. Um, that's true to a certain extent, but even after allowing um, for this difference in prior attainment and the difference in the areas that the, the current grammar schools are serving, um, the, the proportion of pupils in grammar schools that are eligible for free school meals is still about a third um, of what you'd expect. And one extra thing, on top of that, which we can't see in the data, is access to private tuition. So in those areas that have got lots of grammar schools, there's a whole industry of, of, of pupils going and getting the tuition um, to get through the 11 plus. And obviously pupils from lower income backgrounds, those eligible for free school meals are far less likely to have access to that tuition. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned um children who don't pass the 11 plus exam and in that report we we were just talking about um the children who do fail the 11 plus exam to enter grammar school within their area how does that affect them later on in their life in terms of their grades yeah so what our our study has shown and as, as i said many other studies have shown as well there's an attainment penalty um for those pupils that don't get into the grammar school um and the scale of that that, that we identified was around a tenth of a grade in each gcse subject so the the pupils that don't get in are getting lower grades than you'd expect if they they weren't in a in an area that that had grammar schools 
And what's really interesting about that is that those differences actually persist um, into the labour market. So other studies have shown Actually, if you look at the wage distribution um, of areas that still um, retain um, academic se selection, it's far more spread out for those pupils that grew up um, in selective areas um, than for other pupils. So grammar schools potentially not only create inequality in the education system, um, but in the labour market and in wider society as a whole. Yeah. And on that subject, kind of moving on from it, um, the government, uh, grammar schools receive less funding than a non-selective school from the government. Um, why does that happen? And how can that discourage social mobility? Well, it happens because we essentially have a funding system that's set up to give more funding to schools that are operating in more challenging circumstances. So if you look at the government's national funding formula, which is the way the way it uh, determines how much funding a, a school uh, will get every pupil attracts a basic amount of funding um, but then if you're from a low in income background or living in a deprived area you get a little bit more funding if you have low prior attainment you get a bit more funding if you have special educational needs you get a bit more funding and grammar schools simply don't have that many of those um, kind of pupils they're not really getting much um, beyond the basic amount so if grammar schools want more funding one way to do it is to have more pupils that attract, attract those higher rates and more pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds and, and so on. Now, additional funding is definitely one way that you can encourage more um, diverse intakes um, within schools. And it was one of the thoughts behind the pupil premium. So the pupil premium is an, an, an amount um, that individual pupils attract to schools um, if they are from low income backgrounds. So it's around £1,400 in primary schools and around uh, just under £1,000 um, in secondary schools. Now, when that was set up, um, under the coalition government, one of the ideas was that it would encourage schools to take on more pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds, pupils that perhaps wouldn't be um, the highest attaining, so wouldn't get you the, the, the top marks in school performance tables, but still uh, an encouragement to take them on to, to try and close the disadvantage gap overall. And there was some evidence that in, in, in some cases that did occur and schools were prioritising pupils from lower income uh, backgrounds and kind of um, increasing the diversity of their intakes um, and improving access to high, uh, high performing schools for pupils from low income backgrounds. Yeah. Um... And when we do talk about grammar schools, we tend to just compare selective and non-selective schools. But there is something called partially selective schools. And how is partially selective schools different to a selective and a non-selective schools? And what impact do these schools have? Yeah, partially selective schools are an interesting one because they don't get anywhere near um, the level of attention that grammar schools do. Um, and it's not something we really looked at that, that closely in, in all of our studies. I mean, I think there's around 30 or 40 of them um, still still in existence. And they're really born out of the governments of John Major in the 90s and and, Tony, and the early, early years of Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, some will select by general ability in the way that grammar schools do. Um, others in, in skill areas such as music, sport or art. And that really ties in with the specialist schools programmes that, that were introduced by um, uh, Tony Blair. Now, unlike grammar schools... Um, it's only a minority of pupils um, that are selected in that way uh, within those schools. So whereas a grammar school selects all of its pupils by academic ability, 
um, in partially selective schools, it's typically in the range of 10 to 20 percent. And as I say, that could be um, either uh, general ability or in, in those areas such as uh, music, sport and, and the arts. So you've got those 10 or 20 percent that are selected on that basis. And then the rest of this, the school is selected in the same way as any other comprehensive um, school is. There's much less data um, on them than those for grammar schools, much less research that uh, has been has been done on them. Um, but we do know from our work on grammar schools that what's really important is kind of the density of provision. So how many grammar school places there are for, for higher high attaining pupils. So we expect the effects of a partially selected school to be lower than, than grammar school. So still a negative effect for those that, that don't get in, but probably much smaller than in your really highly selective um, grammar school areas. Interesting. Um, and this kind of topic arose because of um, there's been a lot of discussion around it in politics and around politicians. Um, in politics, there's been much discussion on banning grammar schools completely, but there's some politicians which believe that expanding existing schools would be a better solution. In your opinion, which option do you think should be supported? Well, I think there's uh, fewer issues in the education research community that unite quite like grammars. Um, as, as we've covered, the evidence is quite clear um, that they're not a great engine for social mobility. They don't raise attainment overall. It's disadvantaged pupils that lose out to those from low income um, backgrounds. Um, so there's very definitely some very strong arguments against the expansion of grammar schools. Mm. Um, there's definitely also practical issues when it comes to banning them all together, though. So closing schools, uh, closing existing grammar schools. And that can be um, issues like, well, will you lose some teachers that will teach in a grammar school, but will otherwise be lost to the independent sector? I mean, these are things that can be worked through, but it's not quite as easy as let's just ban ban all grammars. Um, but if I was choosing or if I was forced to choose between the simple expanding uh, grammars or banning them altogether, I think the evidence makes clear which side we should be on. Right. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I really appreciate that. Thank you. All right, that was John Andrews, who's the Education Policy Institute's Head of Analysis and Director of School Systems and Performance Research, talking about, um, you know, grammar schools, talking about the different... Uh, reports that they have published and um, if, 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 if they have an impact on social mobility. And I think the last question that he answered, um, his take on that was quite clear. Now, um, most evidence points to the fact that grammar schools, as we've just heard John say, do not encourage social mobility despite you know the initial assumption. Otherwise, there is this myth that grammar schools provide a ladder of opportunity for children. But this is, you know, a lot of people might say, it's still a myth. It is. It is a myth. So many bright working class kids seem to benefit from a grammar school in the 1960s. But this was because of a change in the class structure at that time. Meaning, there was a decline of working class jobs and an increase in middle class jobs, making middle class jobs 
simply more accessible, providing children more of an opportunity to go up the class ladder. Now, this encouraged what was seen as social mobility, but that is not social mobility at all when the jobs higher up the ladder are more accessible. If we want peace in our time, then we must act with justice. That's something at uh, the historic lecture at your university called Justice in an Unjust World. His Holiness, the current Caliph of the MDMs community, he said that we want truly if we truly want peace in our time then we must act with justice we must value equality and fairness as the prophet of islam peace be upon him so beautifully stated we must love for others what we love for ourselves we must pursue the rights of others with the same zeal and determination that we pursue our own rights we should broaden our horizons and look at what is right for the world rather than what is only right for us these are the means of peace in our age so emphasizing the importance of the fact that if we wish to seek justice, then we should aim for quality, equality and fairness. And an overwhelming amount of research has found that this is unfortunately not shown in grammar schools. Here with us to talk a little bit more about this topic is our next guest for today. Uh, professor Stephen Gerard is a professor of education and public policy and director of the Evidence Center for Education at the Durham University. Good afternoon, peace upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Professor. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us today. In 2017, when one of your research papers was published, the education secretary at that time said that Grammar schools would be take uh, would take one more um, would take on more pupils from from a working class background. I want to ask you why did the government at that time believe that this policy could encourage you know social mobility? I'm not convinced that they did. I mean, having spoken to them, I think largely they were pandering to a group of backbenchers who have traditionally sort of supported and believed in grammar. Mm-hmm often from grammar school areas. I'm, I'm not sure there was really a conviction. I think it was an attempt to, um, you know, as has been happening recently, provide policies that sound attractive to certain sections of mm. the ruling party. Um, but, I mean, I suppose the, the, the key issue is this one of uh, people just not taking into account progress. Mm. You know, they look at a school and they say, ah, oh, this school is a grammar school, or this school is a selective school, or this school is a girls-only school. Mm. Or this school is in a nice leafy suburb with middle class intakes and they have high attainment. Therefore, it must be a good school. And another school has a lot of poor, disadvantaged children with perhaps other priorities, poor in nutrition, and they get bad results. And it's assumed that that's a bad, bad school. But you know, a moment's thought tells you that's not the case. Mm. Um, the, the, the school's results are largely um, the consequence of the pupils they take. And the question then is, are these schools producing better results than the pupils would have got if they'd gone to another school? Mm. Which is a question we can never answer because you can't put them through two lives. But yeah. as far as we can match them, the answer is, no, they're achieving about the same results as they would have done under any other circumstances. But I say, it's just that, it's that, I don't know, I suppose it's kind of silliness, really. <laughs> People just looking at it and thinking, ah, this, this school gets high, high grades, therefore it must be a good school. Must be a good school, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it just—I suppose—it's it, just ignorance among, or particularly some of the MPs about what it actually means. I can't believe they really think that. Mm. I think they must know in their heart of hearts that that's nonsense. But for some other reason, they're still supporting it. 
You know, I mean, you know, parents often choose schools not primarily for its attainment outcome, but for the safety and the well-being of their children. And they might think that they want their child to go to school with children who are like them. Hmm. Yeah. But, so, you know, a bright child goes to school with other bright children. Yeah. That might be the motivation. Following on from that, Professor, why why did you then include in your you know one of your research papers that this this policy that we were just talking about would would not encourage social mobility? Well, because the it, it, it's you're just moving around items. They're not the children are to do better or worse, or not substantially better or worse as a consequence. Hmm. Attainment outcomes won't won't be the same. I was interested in your introduction to, to you know, the lead on to, to me coming on. It reminded me of John Rawls' theory of justice, where he talked about the veil of ignorance. And he was saying we should make such decisions as though we, we didn't know where we would be in the society we were creating, so that we couldn't be biased by where we were and what our children were like, what kind of schools they'd go to, mm. and what should you want. And that's what I'd like you know, the education secretaries of any administration to do, to think, I'm responsible for a national system. Hmm. And it shouldn't matter where you live or which school you go to in this national taxpayer-funded system. And, and the more we can work towards that model, I think the better we are and the more we are approaching a kind of a, um, a system that has, has justice underneath it. And in, in that model, do you think that phasing this existing selective school system out, would, would that be something that you would like to see or you know, encourage maybe? Well, it's about what people would want. I think if you, if people, if, if you, again, it's a hypothetical, but if people sure. didn't know where they lived, which, which a local authority they lived in, they didn't know what kind of schools were available, and you put it to them, would you like a system of schools where, say, um, 10% of the most able children, or the most kind of 15%, are taken out from all other schools and put into one kind of school. And then you've got five or six or 10 other schools which are devoid of the most talented you know, peers, mm. could provide aspirational role models for the other children, um, the, the so-called secondary moderns, which you never, ever, ever hear a policymaker advocating. They always say we want more grammar schools, mm. but a grammar school creates necessarily these five to ten other schools which are devoid of the more talented children. But no one ever says, we think it's a good thing to have a lot of schools like that, because mm. that wouldn't be popular. But if you had, so you said, we have a system like that, or a system where people go to school, we have things like houses, sports, and other activities where people can socialize with everybody in the school, um, just as they do with children with special needs or with disabilities. The friendship groups can be of any kind. But within the school, we could allow for some periods in the curriculum children to have activities which are specifically designed for their current level of progress. You know, we know in secondary schools that some children leave primary schools with very limited literacy, and that means they can't access the secondary curriculum. There's no point in studying history if you mm. can't read and so on so you can have catch-up activities for them and at the same time instead of just taking them out of class for catch-up you can have other activities for gifted and talented and other children there's no reason why having a, um, 
a mainstream sort of comprehensive intake to schools means you can't have specific bespoke activities for subgroups of pupils within them. Hmm. I think if you offered that to the electorate, there would be a, a huge majority of people saying, again, if they don't know where their child is going beforehand, we prefer the second model. Yeah. The model is also better for the country. Um, and I and think the evidence is, yeah, sorry, the evidence is it does actually produce better aspiration overall, both educationally and occupationally. And I think in, in all of this, looking at the children itself as well, I mean, I've, I've come across in, in just a couple of days ago a uh, kid uh, who's actually preparing for his 11 plus. And I mean, I've seen the child <laughs> a year ago, two years ago, and, and seen the child now. That's all that's on their mind. I think it's the parents that drill that into their brains as well. It's a society and everything that there's such a pressure on them. Push but that, down, that yeah. model that you've described, I mean, it's a it's a win-win for both, for the parents as well as for the child, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to exaggerate the the you know, the, the, the the stigma of failure eleven plus that some people have talked about, or the pressure for people to do well. You know, in some ways, some people thrive on that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just. Dividing children at a very early age on the basis of some supposed talent, I think it's very divisive for the country hmm. as, as a nation. Um, and we, we end up with a situation where you have very few poorer children in grammar schools, hmm. um, not because poor children can't do well at school, sometimes because they have a, a slower start, they're slower developers, but also other priorities, other issues. And it it doesn't support them. Hmm. Now, I know there's been an attempt to try and increase the number of, say, free school meal eligible children in grammar schools. But even there, it's a very biased subset. So if you look at, for example, children who are long-term disadvantaged, that is, they'll spend their entire life at school um, in a family where the income is below the level such that they're eligible for free school meals for every year they're at school, there are very, very few, almost none of those go to grammar schools. So even when the grammar schools say, we've got a free school more eligible child, that could be temporarily eligible. It could be a family, the dad's an accountant or whatever, their company is, goes bust, they lose their job, they're on benefits for six months, yeah. the child is on free school meals, but their background, their training, their parental support is that of a middle-class family, and by next year, you know, the parent is back in full-time employment. That's a very different situation yeah. to a child who is on benefits for their entire life at school. And those are the children are basically not... I think there was one year, it might have been 2016, when not a single child at grammar school was of that kind. Mm. Not a single one. You know, even though they were parading their, their idea that they were taking free school yeah. meal kids. But they're, they're taking many fewer free school meal kids than they could and they're not taking the ones who are long-term disadvantaged, yeah. who tend to, on average, have a lower level of attainment. Yeah. I mean, and you can see why. Professor, at the end, I, I, I do apologize. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to have to move on. Um, That's right. At the I end, I want to ask you, this, this, this d discussion that we've, we were having right now, it's not just here. I mean, we, you probably listened to the interview that we had with John Andrews, where... Um, uh, you know, we've 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 started hearing about ban banning grammar schools completely. Some politicians believe that we need to expand them. We, you know, the exact existing schools would be b a better solution. It, this 
debate or this discussion does does this need to be solved and and if so how urgently or how non urgently do you think this needs to be solved for us to have this this the education system on on a level that it needs to be to compete with with uh, countries around the world well the i mean around the world the the systems the school systems are the most uh unstratified in terms of opportunities and access are the most successful you know, all the OECD studies show this mm. time and again um, which is why you get these you know south korea north finnish or whatever whatever the current fashion is schools <laughs> Um, and, and so, yes, it would be a good thing to move towards a less stratified school system. And anything which can segregate children in, in, in allocating them to schools is therefore a bad thing. And I think we should work as a society towards not having any of those. Hmm. And that's what the education sector responsibility is. Instead of coming in and saying, we're going to have 200 specialist schools or 300 academies or 250 free schools, yeah. they're better schools than one we've had, but they're only available for a small number of children. Yeah. They should be having just one kind of school, which is the inclusive kind I mentioned, but having activities within them which can be bespoke. That, but that would take some time. Of course. You've got issues like, you know, if, this may not make me popular with your with your listeners, but you know, I would I would abolish faith based schools as well because yeah. they segregate by ethnicity and by other factors yeah. that you could just try and mix up. But it, you can't do it immediately. So yeah. take the grammar school as an example. It would take at least five, maybe seven years to phase them out. No one's yeah. going to keep the schools. You, you want to keep the schools. You want to keep the teachers. But you could simply have you know one co- the next cohort not selective. And then they would go through the year, um, you know, year eight and year nine and so on. And eventually the school would be non-selective. I agree with the previous comment that some teachers may then decide to move on to mm. another school. Mm. Um, but, you know, the education system as a whole, and that includes the FE sector, you know, private tuition and, you know, the independent sector at the moment, they require teachers. They require a certain number of teachers. So when teachers are not wasted as such, even if that happened. Yeah. But I think, you could, I think you could phase this out. It's urgent, but not urgent like tomorrow. It's let's take a 10, 20-year plan. And make it proper. Years. Yeah, do it properly. Do it properly. I mean, yeah. The faith-based thing in this country would take ages because yeah, yeah. of the ownership by the Church of England of, of many of the actual school properties and so on. It, mm-hmm. it would be a major undertaking, yeah. but it would be well worthwhile. Professor, thank you very much for your time, sir. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the Draft Time Show, and thank you so much once again for for your time. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Professor Stephen uh, Gerard, uh, Gerard uh, Professor of Education and Public Policy and Director of the Evidence Centre for Education at the Durham University with us on the line. Thank you very much to him as well. Before we go on to our next guest who's been waiting for us, one of the clearest arguments... For this is the idea that grammar schools only help the wealthy. Wealthy parents can afford to tutor their kids privately, which I tell you by you know doing my little research, um, it's it's not, it's not very cheap. Buy eleven plus uh, books and practice tests, etc., and all of this allows them to become more likely to succeed in getting into grammar schools. Now, in addition, the fact that wealthier parents are able to afford tuition allows them to give their children a boost within school too, compared to a child whose parents cannot afford for their child to be privately tutored, and then you know 
based on that, not getting the same boost as the, as the child with the wealthy parents. I've spoken to parents who stayed up all night to do the reading and then teaching their child or tutoring them in the morning themselves. And this went on for months and months and months. But is that something that is is something that we want? Is that something that uh, every every parent can do if they want their child to succeed? Now, making them less likely to pass you know, the 11 plus to enter the grammar school. So the claim that grammar schools provide an opportunity for everyone to get top class education might not be right. Is you know even completely wrong when the biggest barrier is that actual test. Here with us to talk a little bit more about this topic is our next guest for today. Dr. Matt Dixon is an associate professor of public policy at the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath and an expert in the economics of education. Good afternoon, PC Pony, and welcome to the draft, I'm sure, Dr. Dixon. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good, good. Thank you very much, first of all, for, for joining us today. I hope you're having a great day as well. Um. You claim in your research that grammar systems increase inequality. If I can ask you for the benefit of our listeners out there, can you expand on that research just a little bit? Yeah, of course. So so we were interested in this question of uh, what the selective schooling system does to the whole distribution of wages uh, and how even that distribution is, rather than asking just, you know, what's the effect for a particular child of going to a grammar school? So what we did, we looked at data from the UK, uh, and we considered the earnings of about 2,500 people born in the 1960s and 1970s. And we compared those earnings of people who grew up in areas with a selective system uh, with the earnings of people who grew up in very similar counties, but ones that had a comprehensive system. Mm-hmm. So we then uh, compared people who were uh, similar in their characteristics. And we basically found that the average earnings for people who grew up under each system were almost exactly the same. Uh, but the spread of earnings, right, the inequality of earnings was wider for those who grew up in the selective areas. Um, so to put some numbers on, so that the top earners in these selective areas were earning more than the top earners in the comprehensive areas, about pound thirty an hour or more, something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then if you look at the middle and the bottom of the distribution, the people who grew up in the selective areas are earning less, right, at the bottom of the distribution, like a pound an hour uh, less than than people in the co- who grew up in the comprehensive system. And we find this kind of negative effect in the middle uh, and uh, as well as the bottom. So uh, essentially most people in the selective areas go on to earn less than similar people who grew up in the comprehensive areas. So that's why we think the system increases inequality. Now, for I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm not... Um, born and bred here in the UK. I came to this country and learned everything about this grammar system. I remember a couple of years ago when we when we had the show on, on, on this topic for the first time. I think it was like you know, six six years ago, five, six years ago, we're we're going back. Um I I came across these things for the first time and I I, I was I was just blown away. Um yeah. from growing up in Germany we we I mean it wasn't such a thing. And then to talk about, if, and I want to ask you this as well, social mobility. Why is it that you know these grammar schools do not encourage social mobility? What's what's the what's the reason behind it? I mean, you've come up with the numbers, you've come up with the with the facts and figures, um, but is that something that? 
people are aware? Or is that something that, that parents are after, that my kid should be in in that top category afterwards? Yeah, so I think it, there's a lot of talk about grammar schools and social mobility and, and the kind of the people in favour um, talk about them as boosting social mobility because they allow you know bright children from poor backgrounds to go to a better school than otherwise would have been the case and get mm. a better education. And it's a really appealing story, right? We all like that kind of narrative yeah. of the, the poor kid who gets to the good school and goes on. And there are lots of stories like that. And it's really, I'm going to come back to this, it's really important that the, the stories that are told uh, in, in, in discussion and debate about this. However, the problem is, the vast majority of people going to the grammar schools and, and getting whatever benefit they're conferring are from already better off backgrounds, right? Mm. So you were talking about the tutoring and this. And if you know, if you look at kids who go to grammar schools, about 3% of kids in grammar schools are eligible for free school meals, so from the kind of lowest kind of 15% of the, of the income distribution. Um, but in the areas where grammar schools are, about 10% of kids are eligible for free school meals. So there's a big inequality there. Mm. Um, and a part of this is because by age 11, kids from better off families are doing better, and so they do better on the test, more likely to go. But even when we look at children who get the same attainment at age 11, there's a big difference. So if you take the top performers at age 11, children from the best off families have about a 70% chance of going to the grammar school, and those from the worst off families have about a 25% chance. And that's kids who get the same attainment, right? The top mm. of the top of the class kind of thing so there's a big difference in, in in who goes so any winners from the system are disproportionately from better off families but the key thing is if you're going to say something about social mobility you can't just focus on oh you know these poor kids a few poor kids get into the yeah. schools and they go and, and do really well what you need to do is look at the whole system and the whole the middle and the bottom, what happens to the people who don't go to the grammar school? And and the key thing is that there are losers to the system as well, right? Which is, as I say, rarely talked about. Hmm. So you need to think about what happens there. And those kids in selective areas who don't go to the grammar school, they do worse than similar children from areas where they have the comprehensive system. And they so we see this in their school results. We see it in their chances of going to like higher education and particularly to the you know elite higher education. And we see it in their earnings outcomes and particularly actually poor children's outcomes who don't go to the grammar school they end up doing a lot worse than similar kids in comprehensive areas and so the problem we have is that in the, in the debate about this is that everybody has one of these stories of a kid who you know on the road and uh, in the same street one of them went to the grammar school and did really well and one of them didn't and did poorly and you know isn't it great um, <laughs> isn't that a great story but for every story like that and you know politicians love telling these stories Every story like that, there are about 50 or 60 missing stories that we yeah. don't hear of, of the kid who didn't get into the grammar school and ended up doing worse than the kid in the next county who went to the comprehensive but was otherwise their kind of equivalent child, right? Yeah. And we don't, we don't have those stories. They're missing stories because, you know, who knows the kid in the next county? Do you know that, you know, like you know yeah. the kid across the street, but you don't know the kid in the next county. And so... You know, the key thing is if you're going to make a statement about social mobility, then you need to consider, yeah, what happens at the bottom as well as what happens at the top. Sure. And, and disproportionately, you know, the losers from the system are, are poorer kids. So it's, you know, it's a massive uh, negative for social mobility. So in, in keeping this in mind, then, I mean, when, when I just spoke to uh, Professor Stephen Gerard, he, he mentioned an uh, interesting thing that 
like a model where you focus on the comprehensive schools in order to make it more accessible to everyone, have bespoke systems basically um, where you don't have this 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 uh, selective school model within. I mean, it would take time, of course, uh, to yeah. adjust and then to adapt. But is is that maybe one thing to look at where you have everyone on, on, on the same level basically, but tailored and bespoke i don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah no absolutely i think you know the problem is from a, a, people in favor of grammar school say oh well look at least we're selecting you know it's meritocracy yeah. we're selecting people on ability not on on the ability of their parents to buy a house near a good school right hmm. but the you know and there's a lots of good arguments that you know the system of essentially selection by house price that's really bad you know hmm. but just because Just because selection by house price is not good doesn't mean that selection, you know, the, the grammar system with all its inequalities for social mobility doesn't mean that's the right answer. I think Professor Gower is exact, exactly right that we need to focus on uh, improving the comprehensive schools. And, you know, at the moment, all this selection is going on by the house price, right? Yeah. So there are things you can do uh, to change uh, the way children are allocated to schools, you know, At the moment, people have choice, but it boils down to where you live because the, the better off schools are oversubscribed because everyone wants to go there, right? Yeah. And then they have to decide who to admit. And, you know, for good reasons, they say, well, it's good for people to live close to the school. But you can do things, you know, in urban areas, you could have lotteries for, you know, who gets into different schools. And this, then any kind of competition between schools works where you've got a similar intake in terms of ability and in terms of their social background. And that's easier to do with lotteries, you know, in a in a uh, urban area. In rural areas, you could have the sorts of systems Professor Gar was talking about, where you have perhaps banded entry, where a certain proportion of places in each school are for children from different backgrounds, children of different abilities. And then, if all the schools are kind of fairly similar, then you can um, you don't get this kind of uh, house price effect, and uh, you don't get the inequality that comes with that. So I think, yeah, absolutely, the the focus should be on Uh, improving our comprehensive system and getting that kind of that school choice system working. Mm, wonderful. Dr. Mark Dixon, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Um, and pleasure. for uh, explaining this and facts and figures and in numbers. Thank you so much for your time once again. No problem at all. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Peace be upon you. Dr. Matt Dixon is an associate professor of public policy at the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath and an expert in the economics education, as you've just heard. To conclude, in theory, in theory, grammar schools are supposed to provide a ladder of opportunity even to working-class students. And the aim of grammar schools was to provide an excellent standard of, edu- of education that is accessible to all. However, as you've just heard from pretty much all of our guests, in reality, that does not work at all. This assumption does not take into account the difference in government funding compared to a comprehensive school. It's also surprisingly not, you know, does not take into account class and people's wealth status. And all of these can give an edge, but it's is not an asset abstained by working class children. We want to finish off with a verse of the Holy Quran in which God Almighty in chapter 16 verse 91 states, Verily Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression. He admonishes you that you may take heed. 
and all of this, it's our children that need to be kept in mind. That's what we are doing for, and they are the future. And whatever is good for them, that system needs to be applied. And as I said, this discussion is going to be ongoing. Thank you very much for listening today's, uh, to today's show. I want to thank our uh, research and produce, uh, production team, Pervish Oman, Nadia Shamas, uh, Samal Inam, for their excellent work uh, on today's program. Thank you very much for listening in. Don't worry. Tomorrow is the SML, and we're going to be back on Monday. Assalamu alaikum.